those people who treat the craft of business development or influence, if you will, and they attack that with the same rigor and excitement and energy that they attack their core craft. So now they have two skills. Those are the people who rise to the top. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Agnell, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. Hey, welcome back to the Inspire Podcast and happy 2019. I'm thrilled today to welcome Mo Bennell on the podcast. I've known Mo for a decade. He is a guru when it comes to selling. And he's a guru because for him, it's not about selling. It's about helping your customer, helping to build a relationship in an authentic way. And he's just published a great new book called The Snowball System. It's getting a huge press. I've read it. It's awesome. And one of the reasons I wanted to have him on to talk about his book is that he goes into detail about how important authentic communication is to successful business development. So you want to listen to this podcast. If you've ever had to sell an idea and you've wanted to know how do I do it in a genuine way, in a way that works for both sides, how do you adjust your communication to reach the audience and what mistakes you should not make if you're going to be successful. So enjoy the conversation with Mo Bennell. Mo, welcome to the Inspire podcast. Hey, thanks, Bart. I'm excited. I'm excited to have you. I, I think we talked about you coming on uh, when you first told me that you were writing your new book, The Snowball System. And so here we are. I know. And we've known each other so long that I think this is really fun to do because it's sort of, it's a neat chapter in our relationship as well. It is. And, and I, uh, for those listening uh, who don't know Mo, uh, Mo is someone who is really a leader in the industry of teaching people how to build relationships and build business. And I, I say that from personal experience. I think it was about 12 or 13 years ago. Uh, we were introduced to each other and you came, Mo's based in Atlanta, and uh, he came up to Toronto and did some work with, uh, with the Humphrey Group leadership team and profoundly changed how I thought about and how we thought about building business. And so uh, I've continued to enjoy great returns from the, uh, the skills you gave me. And now my team as well continues to invest time in learning your approach. So you have a new book out, I know, because you wanted to reach the masses and empower them. Give us the snapshot. What is the book? What's it about? Yeah. So the snowball system is all about how to do business development or, or a less fancy word is sales. <laughs> how, do you, how do you build your own sales skills in a way that can be authentic and genuine and proactive so that you are helping other people. And while you're helping them and you're enjoying that, you're also helping your own career. And I think one thing I'd love to talk with you about, Bart, because you know your audience so well, is while that description might make it sound like you need to be some externally in some externally facing role, you're a business development, or maybe you're a, a lawyer, accountant, consultant, you're an expert in a field, an account manager, these same skills, I think, apply to internal roles too, 
as people shape their ability to help others in, inside an organization, IT, marketing, HR, things like that. I mean, how do you see it? Yeah, I totally agree. You know, our, our business and what this podcast is all about is the idea that everyone, no matter if you're a manager, an executive, a frontline specialist, everyone is in the business of influence and inspiration. Mm-hmm. And what resonated with me uh, when I read the book and through the work that we've done is that you really view uh, everyone's role as having to sell ideas, build relationships and do so authentically. So maybe I'll, I'll start by asking you, why is it that so many people are fundamentally uncomfortable with the idea that they have to sell? That's a great question. And I think, I think the old world is sort of around the idea that if I'm really great at my craft, I do great work and the phone will ring and I shouldn't have to be pushing anything. (laughs) (laughs) And, and those days are over. (laughs) I don't know when they ended, but they're over because the core craft of of someone, say they're a, a, a senior partner in a law firm or they're a chief marketing officer at a fortune company. Um, what, what happens is you become really great at your craft. A lot of other people are great at their craft too. And if you don't have the ability to shape the future for yourself and for the folks that you serve, then you're never going to achieve the great things you want to achieve. In other words, the world isn't going to pull you to the high value kind of work and impact you want to have. You've got to point at it, know what it is and influence others to get there. You found that yourself, didn't you? As a, uh, and perhaps you could share the story of how you uh, graduated from being a functional expert into this role and found there was no roadmap for doing this. Yeah, you got it. So uh, you can't get much more deeply technical than what I was. I was an, an actuary. And uh, a lot of times we don't want to say that too early in the podcast. You know, we click, I don't want to Keep hear. listening. Keep listening. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved it. And I love the craft of a deeply complicated mathematics that solves problems. I still, you know, follow sabermetrics in baseball, especially by my my favorite team, the St. Louis Cardinals, because I just love how math can solve technical problems. So I had sort of one foot in expertise. And as I rose up through the ranks at a consulting firm, I realized pretty early that it wasn't necessarily the best actuaries who, who rose up the, the quickest in the ranks and had a big, deep impact on their, their clients. But it was those who could communicate, and your, to use your words, inspire others in ways that it wasn't just about the math and the numbers, but it was about explaining the math and the numbers to someone in a way that they could digest it, understand a deeply technical concept, and act on it in a way that helped their, in my case, helped their employees at big or big organizations. And as I finished my last exam to become fully accredited, a fellow of the Society of Actuaries, my company saw that I loved this idea of communication, and they moved me to what we call the management consulting role. And in that role, I wasn't an inch wide and a mile deep anymore. I was the opposite. I was a mile wide and an inch deep. And I was asked to lead some of our biggest client relationships and to grow them. And I went to my boss as a studious actuary fresh <laughs> off of the taking all those exams, 24 exams over like eight years or whatever. As I came off of that, I was good at studying. And I went to my boss and said, hey, where's the manual? You know, where, how do we do business development? I'm ready. Give it to me. I'm going to study it. And I'm going to be your best, you know, your best person. And he laughed at me and sort of chuckled and slapped me on the back and said, Mo, there's no manual. You know, just treat the client right. 
and I was scared to death. <laughs> so you know the rest of the story, but yeah. I, I just started studying and digging into behavioral science and psychology and neuroscience and why people say yes to one thing and not another and how relationships are developed and putting steps in there and, and trying to figure out how do you get from one step to the next. And that's how this whole system was sort of born was out of my own fear of failure. So Mo, would you say that for anyone listening, whether they're in an actual sales role or a role where they have to influence, that step one, lesson one is you have to recognize that your success depends on your ability to influence. You just nailed it, Bart. And that's exactly it. And what I see, we've trained over 12,000 professionals and internal folks all over the world and the highest of the high when it comes to expertise. And what I found is the people who succeed are the ones that, of, of course, they try very hard to be the, the smartest and best expert at their core craft. But the people who stay at that end up stalling out. And pretty soon, they get moved into roles that are more in a back office, more of a technical role. The people who see that they've got one foot in expertise and one foot in finding others to say yes to it, to, have more, to want more of it, those people who treat the craft of business development or influence, if you will, and they attack that with the same rigor and excitement and energy that they attack their core craft. So now they have two skills. Those are the people who rise to the top. Hmm. So let's get and delve into that craft. Okay. If someone listening on the phone says, okay, I accept the premise. I'm in. Sales. <laughs> I'm, in. I, I, I'm in. What is the first thing that they should do to begin building their capability and craft? Well, one, one thing that there's a lot of science about, which you, we might want to go deeper on, is the science of how people think. Hmm. And there's four major ways people think. And if you want, I could sort of give the listeners the, the quick version of that and they start please using do. it right away. I, I know that was something for me 10, 12 years ago that really resonates. So please take us into it. Yeah. So I'll skip over the science. It's all in the book and cited and all that stuff. But the basic idea is that the physiological structure of the brain is our science is to the point that we can tell what different areas the brain do down to the level of a neuron. To one cell with specific experiments, people can figure out what that cell is functioning. And if it changes over time, because you sort of exercise your mind, if you will, then that can actually change in certain ways. So if we sort of use a metaphor, four big buckets for how the brain's organized, it makes a two by two matrix. There's a sort of an upper part of the brain and a lower part, cerebral versus limbic. And there's a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere. A lot of people have heard of left and right brain thinking. A lot, not as many people have heard of upper and lower. And those, if we think of a sort of a visual two by two matrix, there's two opposing pairs and they're in the diagonals. And that's the easiest way to describe the model. One way of thinking is very strategic. That involves creative brainstorming, holistic synthesizing kind of thinking. That's the ability to see things in broad, broad swaths and see large themes that are happening in the marketplace. The kind of people that kind of thinking are really good at just intuitively knowing ideas. I, our business needs to go there or the marketing department needs to start doing that. Well, the opposite of those broad themes are the details. How are we going to get that done? And those kind of, that way of thinking is more in Gantt charts and to-do lists and process steps and tactics and things like that. So the first opposing pair is the big ideas versus how do we get it done? The second opposing pair is sort of the facts versus the feelings. Uh, in the facts, it's 
data and logic and the ability to do critical analysis. You know, think of that actuarial brain um, mm-hmm. or somebody that's in the finance department that knows that our profit margin is exactly 12.3%, but that's better than it was last quarter, which was 12.1. And they don't just say about 10, they say 12.3 and 12.1. Those are the facts. And then the opposite of that is feelings. How are people feeling right now? Uh, having empathy for others, being able to look around a room and tell, man, Jane's into this, but Cream isn't. What's going on? I should ask him a question and get him reengaged, just intuitively knowing about feelings. So when we put the whole model together, you've got strategic thinking, you've got tactical thinking, and then the other two, we've got the facts and the numbers and the data, and we've got how does everybody feel about how things are going on. And the ability to, to communicate to figure out what another person needs. How do they think? And what are they buying into? Which one of those four, or is it multiple? Mm. And then how do I communicate the way they want to be communicated with, as opposed to me communicating in the way I would say yes to something, my ideas? Hmm. That is a really critical first step to success. So how do you understand what your audience will respond to? I mean, aside from saying, hey, you know, before we have this pitch, I'd like you to complete this uh, HBDI (laughs) assessment. (laughs) What do you do? Well, uh, in some ways you can ask them. We we worked with one uh, super high-end financial advisory group and they actually asked the question when they were meeting prospects. They would send an email or or on the phone, even better. They say, hey, great that you're interested in our services. Um, we've got four major things we usually talk about. Uh, you know, one is strategically where you'd like to take your wealth. The other is how we onboard people and how do we do quarterly assessment meetings and all the details of what we do it. Those are two things. The other two are how are your results going now and would you like an analysis of that and how we how would we propose you know improving your ability to earn a, earn earn money in the marketplace without enhancing risk, you know, using Monte Carlo simulations and all kinds of other things. Or the the fourth thing is just talking about getting to know each other and talking about your family and our team and see if we have a cultural fit. So they would like send an email or get on the phone and say, Hey, these are the four things. I know we've got an hour and a half at lunch. How would you divide up the time? Hmm. And I imagine if you can't send a survey, you can observe. So if you have someone who enjoys the small talk, who enjoys rapport building, you can say, well, this person might be in the feeling uh, quadrant as opposed to someone it. who's just like, Hey, let's get to the numbers. You got it. Yeah. Like me. <laughs> well, <laughs> me I think, thoughts, I think you, can, you can tell which ones <laughs> I'm in considering as you were speaking, I was drawing the quadrant. And my question was, which, which opposing pairs fit into which quadrant? <laughs> exactly. Oh. And what's the data? Why'd you skip over the science? Yes, I wanted exactly. to hear the science. <laughs> yeah, so you have a big analytical thing, yeah. but uh, way of thinking. But yeah, the one you know, one way is you can ask them. You know, in that little email or face-to-face mm-hmm. example, you don't always have that opportunity. The other way is just to watch people. When do they get engaged? When do they start asking questions? When do they lean in because they want more? And we go into much more detail in the book around specific clues you can look for and how a person's office looks or how they dress or what questions they ask or when they're engaged. And then we go into great detail for decoding, if you will, how people think, and then what specifically are they looking for to say yes to something. Mm. But the super quick answer is pay attention. People are, uh, people are shouting out their thinking preferences all the time, and we just have to look for when they're engaged and look for all the clues. Mm. And I imagine that, of course, knowing yourself is important, that just as I alluded to, we all have preferences of our own for brain 
you know, dominance. What happens, you know, of course, if your brain preferences overlap with your potential client or existing client, you know, fireworks. But what happens if you're going in, you're, say, a strategic feeler, and the person you're meeting with is a data, you know, tactical person? Should you send someone else? Should you, how do you capitalize when you recognize that mismatch? It's so funny. I wish I would have known this earlier in my career because I flubbed a lot of meetings, not understanding <laughs> this principle. But when I found it, you know, all the light bulbs went off like, oh, that's why I didn't get, a, get along with so-and-so as well as I thought I should, you know. Um, let me give you three ways, Bart. One way is just to make sure you cover all four. We call that a whole brain walk around, and it is brilliant. Um, the data shows that only 5% of the 2 million people that have actually taken this assessment and they've got hard data results. Of those 2 million people, only 5% are one of the four. Hmm. So 95% of people have two, three, or four strong preferences. Well, once you get a group, anything, any kind of decision-making body for anything significant usually involves two, three, four, five people. So as we start to speak to groups and we need to have a yes at the end of that meeting, for whatever we're doing to be more helpful to them, then we're pretty sure if we just cover all four, somebody in that room has one, has a, at least one person has each of the four thinking styles. So, so easy way one is just make sure you cover all four. And that's really fun to do too, to push yourself. Mm -hmm. um, the second way would be to look at those clues and sort of steer your conversation to one or more of the quadrants. And that's an interesting, mm -hmm. um, uh, way to do it. And then the third one, which I, one of our clients taught us is bring someone else <laughs> to your point. <laughs> Love you know, it. If you're, let's say you're meeting with somebody uh, super factual, mm -hmm. super into the numbers, and you're more into the feelings. Well, number one, don't blabber on about <laughs> a birthday party all weekend for 40 right. minutes of an hour meeting, you know, leave it to two minutes. Um, right. But if you're not comfortable with the data, grab somebody who is in the office and take mm -hmm. them and give them, put the spotlight on them for specific parts of the agenda that they can hit. So let's imagine that you've made the commitment to sales, even if you're not in sales. Yeah. You know your own, you know, brain preferences and you've done the work, you know, you have to influence whether it's, you know, selling an internal ideal or, or actually landing a piece of business. Now you're, it's time to do it. And there was a chapter in your book, I'm wondering if you could take us into where you talk about how you actually communicate authentically to influence. And I believe if I recall, there were five ways that you recommend doing it. Can you take yeah, us into those a bit? I sure can. And uh, this is about likability. And you there's mean, a ton can, of- You can make people like you? Yes. Even, if you're, even if you're a horrible person, Mo? You're gonna <laughs> you, I know you and I know you wouldn't have anybody that's horrible on your list. That's your right. <laughs> <laughs> you only have good people. Um, but yeah, the core of just just to hit that for a second, the core of the book is all around helping others and always mm. doing things that are in the best interest of that person you're talking to, whether it's a external internal role. So mm. so we've got a criteria for good people, or they'll put the book down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think that's you know both of us are having a laugh on it, but I think it's a really important point because you know a lot of sales, and I think this is where people get squeamish about it. Yeah, is viewed as manipulative. You know, when you think about, I mean, that seminal sales movie, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, yeah. <laughs> such a phenomenal movie, but they all are selling something that they know is not worth anything. You know, it's a manipulative con, right? And the rewards are there. And I think people often have that experience of buying something and then having buyer's remorse, almost have been 
emotionally manipulated into purchasing something they didn't need or want. And, and I think what's so foundational about your book is that you flip it and you say, to really sell, you have to put the interests of the client or the person you're trying to influence first. Does that capture it? No, you nailed it. That's exactly right. And we hit that in the first couple of pages that selling is helping and the long-term relationship is paramount. Hmm. And it, so, we even hmm. got sort of a one-liner around it that I think so telling is like, you know, a, a deal or two might make your year, but a relationship or two specific ones might make your career. They're so much more important than, you know, sliding a fancy pen across the table at a steakhouse, you know, like in Glen Gary Glen Ross and getting somebody to sign on the bottom line and you run away. No, no, no. Yeah. This is all about always doing things that are in the best interest of others. Okay. So Mo, you've got someone who they are ready to build relationships, build business authentically with the intention of helping customers. How do they go about doing it? They're really, I remember there were five ways in your book you talk about. You got it. And I, let me run through these quickly and then maybe we can cover a couple of them in detail. Great. You know, the ones that you think would resonate Great. with your audience the best. Well, the first one's commonality. Um, a ton of research shows that we spend more with people we like. That's sort of for all likability levers, if you will. And then commonality is the number one. We tend to like people we have things in common with. There's some really okay. unique things about there that I could explain, but that, that what's stronger or not around commonality. The second one is frequency. The mere exposure effect first studied in 1876 tells us that the more times we see something or a person, the more chance we have to like them. Hmm. So that's really important for us, the onus to be on us to create those exposures, if you will, emails, phone calls, mm -hmm. somebody in the hallway, anything we can do to create more, frequency of interactions. Okay. The third of the five is mutually beneficial. So we tend to like people that not only are helpful to us, this is interesting, but also people that we help. Hmm. It's almost if the brain rewires itself to say, I must like them because I'm helping them. <laughs> so, right. so what that means is we not just we can't just offer help to people. We have to ask for help. We have to ask for their advice and then follow up afterwards and say, hey, loved your idea. I did it. Thank you. That loop right, right there is extremely powerful for hmm. likability. The fourth of the five is balance, and that's the ability to connect in all those four thinking styles that we talked about before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and the last one, which is what we call uniqueness, the ability to connect with people in ways that they didn't expect. Hmm. Um, reaching out to somebody at a random time um, with a little note saying thank you in January is more powerful than reaching out to somebody around the holidays with a standard Christmas hmm. card or holiday card, you know, that just says, Hi, uh, thanks for your business this year. It's great, you know, because everybody else is flooding mm. people's inbox with the same kinds of cards. So the, the ability to connect in unique ways actually has a stronger effect than if everybody else is doing the same thing. Well, I'd love th these are great, and I'd love to delve into a couple of them uh, in more detail. Starting with commonality, you know, and, and I think the the frame through which I'd like to look at is small talk. You know, so many people tell me. I hate small talk. It feels inauthentic and I don't, I know I need to do it, but I don't want to do it. So how would you advise someone to build commonality in a way that's authentic and genuine? 
Oh, I love that. Small talk, whether it's at a holiday or a dinner party or you're in the first five minutes of the Zoom meeting and nobody else is there but you and the other person, you know, mm. there's these little opportunities for small talk, small talk. And what you can do is instead of just talking about the generic things like, oh, wow, it's really cold today, you know, weather kind of stuff, um, talk about, ask questions, talk about the, what the person's interested in. Uh, start finding ways to find out commonality. So instead of talking about the weather, you might say, hey, what'd you do this weekend? A bunch of research just came out even in the past couple months that found that likability not only correlated with people talking about themselves and especially per sort of personal beliefs, not, not personal mm -hmm. things, but personal beliefs, you know, like what they're interested in, what they're focused on next, things like that. But it also found that the follow-up questions highly correlated to likability. So when we ask somebody what they did over the weekend, they say, oh man, I'm pretty exciting. I went mountain biking. We don't want to just go, oh yeah, I go mountain biking too. Here's where I went. We want to continue to make a game out of finding specifically what they love and ask follow-up questions. Hmm. And that's not only going to correlate to likability itself, but then we're going to find things we have in common through the follow-up questions like, Maybe we've gone to the same place they have. Maybe we've mountain biked to the same place or our kids have or whatever. But we want to continue to dig in, find out what they're passionate about, ask follow-up questions. And through that, then we're going to circle back later and say, um, either we like that, if it's authentic, or that we've been interested in, or whatever way it is to, to authentically follow up. Let's imagine that, you know, like you mentioned, uh, baseball, you know, and yeah. I'm, you know, I'm an NFL fan. I'm a... Uh, NBA fan, but I'm not a baseball fan. So if I was to ask you follow-up questions, the uh, and or you were to get energized by that topic, it's unlikely for us to find commonality. So in a situation like that, should I shift the conversation and ask you be like, well, well, what else did you do this weekend? <laughs> or do I risk is that abrupt, or do I do I continue going down that path on a topic where the likelihood of us finding common ground is low well or find a commonality within it hmm. so if if you loved uh football and basketball and i love baseball you might say man mo it sounds like you really like sabermetrics and the study of advanced statistics hmm. in baseball what are your views on how that's going to impact other sports hmm. you know i'm a big nfl and nba fan but i don't follow baseball a lot but how do you think this emerging science of deep mathematical analysis mm -hmm. and running the baseball team on that have you, have you seen that? Do you think that's going to port over to football and basketball? Well, no, here we go, because it's already coming into basketball. It's totally reshaped the game by valuing three-pointers differently. And look, we're, we're off and running. We're, we're finding <laughs> commonality right there. Watch so you, out. There's okay. always a so way. There's always something. You there's just have something. to keep digging and then authentically pushing to a place where you overlap. You got it. Let's talk about this mutually beneficial thing because I think it's also counterintuitive you know you think about sales whether it's selling an idea or selling a product it's very much could be viewed as I'm trying to get you to do something I'm going to try to get you to buy so how do how do you get that person instead to be helping you oh I love it so all the science here is is the, well the best person I've ever seen sort of encapsulated is Adam Grant at Penn and his book, Give and Take, is just famous. Mm -hmm. He's it's wonderful. Really great stuff. He wrote a wonderful uh, blurb for, for the Snowball System. 
and his he's the real deal like he yeah, is have to, a net, have to get him on this podcast we need to figure it out he is a mm-hmm. net giver and a wonderful yeah. person and what he found in his research is that the the people who rise the fastest have the most success and also are the happiest are those that not just give to people like that's better than taking mm-hmm. from people if we had three levels mm-hmm. don't <laughs> taker is the first lesson and then being a net giver can be better than that but it's the people that have mutually beneficial relationships that are the most successful Hmm. so i tend to just in my own life i try to give more than i receive all the time all the time all the time but then when there are ways to ask for somebody's help to expand our business to to help their organization Mm -hmm. more or whatever this was really hard for me to do say 15 years ago it's really natural now with practice but we need to ask people for help to expand in another area, to ask for a referral to that organization that you know this person knows well, um, but we haven't done work for there yet. Um, to ask if I'm CMO of an internal marketing department, I'm doing really strategic work with one business unit, but not so much with the other another that I'm being reactive, to be able to ask for advice on mm-hmm. how we were able to help business unit number one transform their marketing and support them at a higher level and ask for advice on how we could figure out how to do that for business unit number two. Asking for those ideas and the, the help is not only going to give you better ideas, but as the person's helping you, the statistical correlation that's very strong is they begin liking you more hmm. because helping is a good feeling. Um, so you're actually giving to them by getting them to give to you. Bingo. That's exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. And, and then it also gives you all these opportunities for commonality, link back to right. other things, because now we have this thing in common that we're trying to help another group that doesn't see the light quite yet. And now it gives me opportunity or anyone to follow back up with the person leading business unit number one, to say thank you, to say, hey, I wrote the draft email we talked mm-hmm. about. Would you mind giving it a five-minute review? So now we're getting all these threads built that are even stronger, stronger, stronger in new areas. And then each interaction we have gives us another chance to find a new commonality. And you can mm. see how this, this mutually beneficial plus commonality thing really build, they build off each other. It's almost like a snowball, Mo. It is. Really <laughs> <good>. <laughs> We're rolling downhill That's now. right. That's yeah. right. So, okay. So let's, uh, you know, now I want to leave our listeners uh, excited to buy the book. We, we'll, we'll skip over the other three uh, for today. And it's a good reason to go buy the book and, and read it. Yep. Um, the final thing I want to get into is closing. You know, again, that Alec, if you haven't seen, if you're listening and you haven't seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you need to. I mean, it's just one of the seminal performances around sales and, you know, some phenomenal actors like, you know, Kevin Spacey, Alec Baldwin. And there's that wonderful scene where Alec Baldwin comes in and reads the riot act to these down on their luck real, real estate brokers and tells them, you know, ABC always be closing. <laughs> and of course he has, you know, some great props to go along with it. Um, but I think that, you know, that movie sums up why so many people hate the idea of closing. They view it as manipulative, as mm-hmm. forcing someone, you know, it's kind of like when you're at the car dealer, you bought the car and then they put you in the room and don't let you leave until you buy an extended warranty that you don't need. How should people think about closing instead? You, you told that so well that when I was listening to it, my face was shaking. It was like, <laughs> you know, 
saying, no, 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 in my mind, don't do it that way. But you're right. That is the perfect example of how not to do it. It's pushy. It's manipulative. Um, when people feel pressure, the science shows they run the other way. And so the, the worst thing we can do is put too much emphasis on the close. Um, in fact, when we've been asked to work with our clients and actually you know, go on pitches and ride-alongs and things like that to evaluate, you know, maybe somebody says, Jim is great at surfacing opportunities, but horrible at closing. Can you ride along with them? And our team will ride along and we'll give an evaluation. Lo and behold, almost every time people aren't bad at closing, they're bad at creating the demand, if you will. Hmm. So what I mean by that is there's a whole section in the book that goes through this in great deal, but we can give all the tips to your listeners today. And the step before closing is called building everything together. Okay. When people do building everything together correct, closing is easy. There's no time pressure. The person actually is excited to get started. So building everything together involves getting incremental yeses on four key things. Guess what? They tie back to the four thinking style <laughs> in a specific order. And by getting engagement from the buyer, the person that needs to say yes internally, and getting little yeses in each of the four steps that we can cover if you want, then by the time they get to the end, they're all ready to sign up. Closing <laughs> is easy. They're they become a buyer. Yeah. yeah, you're yeah. creating a buy as opposed to eh, you know icky selling. So give us the, the Coles notes of the four steps because I think anyone listening would be interested. Yeah, uh, happy to. So the first thing is to get agreement on the goal. Why are we working together? What are we going to accomplish if, if we do X, Y, Z for you? And if you've done a good job of asking questions and digging into what they want, that should be easy. But when you write it down, they might have tweaks to it. Writing is, drives clarity. And while you might have a great lunch talking about the goals, when you actually write it down and they review it, they might be able to improve it. Well, great. If they tweak it, super. They're engaged. They're buying in. Um, there's a ton of science here I'll skip over, but, but the quick version is as people engage and tweak things, they like it far more than they did if it was hmm. given to them fully baked. And I, that's my favorite science, but I'll leave people to write the book to read the book to get that. So number one is agreement on the goals. After you have agreed, do we need Cadillac approach or quick and dirty work or what we're trying to accomplish? Now, the second step is to build the process with them. These are sort of the major uh, pieces of work, when they'll be done. It can be sort of at a high level. It can be a detailed Gantt chart. It really depends. But the idea there is to get incremental yeses on when we start and who does what by when. So now we're in the process kind of way of thinking. This is really important because as people see it, they might go, oh, man, um, I'm the CEO. I got to have the re some preliminary results by the board meeting. Can we move phase one up two weeks? Because then that would give me the results to, hmm. to tell the board. OK, yeah, that's great. So that, again, incremental yeses for the process are building buy-in. After you've got the goals and the process pinned down, the third is the team. Who's going to do this work? Is it high level? Is quick and dirty okay? Who's available from our team, from your team? Do they get along? Are they excited about it? Who else, need, who else do we need to get to buy in? That team quadrant is sort of about who's actually going to do stuff on each side and, and do they get along? And then the fourth thing are metrics and money. Uh, how much is this going to cost? 
what are our KPIs or what are our metrics, both lagging and leading indicators we might track and get agreement on the numbers last is important because, because if you send mm -hmm. everything all at once to somebody, all four of those things, unfortunately, the first thing they look at is the money and the metrics and mm -hmm. they have no idea what went into it and you got a high chance of a no. So by, by leaving that till the end, people totally understand the value that went into it and it's a lot easier to openly and honestly talk about the money and the metrics in a way that everybody's going to enjoy. Yeah, Mo, I love those four steps because what they really, it goes back to this ethos that you have around helping the client and mm -hmm. that it's a long-term relationship. And so whether you're, you're getting agreement on the goals or you're crafting the process, they're, you're really involving them and getting them to commit time. And I, and I so often see people, you know, they'll go, they'll, they'll have a quick call and then they'll go away, they'll, they'll build this big proposal uh, and then they send it off and then they say, why did I never hear anything? Exactly. And how has that failed to do these four things and why does it seldom lead to success? Well, and so many people do it. It really, it makes, makes my selling heartbreak because <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly the wrong thing to do. There's two reasons it fails. One is when you send somebody something fully baked, the only way they can add value, which we all have a tremendous unconscious desire to add value and be helpful. The only way they can add value to something that's fully, fully baked is to poke at it, to tear it apart. Hmm. So if they weren't, if they didn't have their fingerprints on it, as you build it, they're stuck because they, they, they might even want to say yes, but the only way they can move forward is if they say, I don't like this. And I don't like that. Ah, that's too much work. I don't want to give feedback. I'll just put it off another week. Um, so that's thing number one. Thing number two that's sort of very related is the science called the IKEA effect. IKEA, like the Swedish retailer. Right. <laughs> I won't spend too much time, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Trapped. Trapped in it. <laughs> and the, the super quick version, we go much more detail in the book that's super interesting, but the quick version is that that IKEA effect is a mental heuristic um, that was built by Michael Norton and, and some other great researchers. And what they found is that people buy into what they help create. And I'll leave the, I'll leave this super interesting science for people who read the book, but we tend to like things and buy into things that we help create. So we actually want to build things. So by giving our clients, by building everything together and giving the people who need to say yes, little yes and no options. Do you like this? Do you like that? Does this look good? We're making it actually quite easy for them to, to incrementally buy in. They enjoy doing it. And by the time that they get done with building everything together, they've got a, they basically built the proposal already and they, we know they're going to like it. I, and I love that. You know, I think it's, again, back to the relationship, the partnership, helping them, having them have a voice. I mean, it, it really sums up everything you've talked about today is a reframing of sales mm -hmm. and from almost from sales to influence. Yeah. Um, from sales to influence. I really like that. Or, you know, instead of being pushy salespeople, we're going to create a wonderful buy-in process. You know, it's very enjoyable. It. So those, I think those both go together really well. Well, Mo, you've uh, you certainly whet my appetite to uh, talk to this, uh, talk to my team about everything in the book, because I think it's such a genuine way to help clients. And I'm sure anyone listening, uh, whether they're in a sales, formal sales role or a role where they have to influence has whet their appetite to get a copy. So perhaps you can uh, just quickly outline where people can get the book or any other resources that you and your firm offer. 
Oh, that's great. Well, there's two ways that are very inexpensive for you to, for people to go further. Um, I'll give you the free way and, and a $20 way. <laughs> um, the free way is we've got a series of really great business development and influence focused videos. And the first um, suite that people get when they sign up is an eight part series on creating demand for your expertise. It works great for external roles. It works great for internal roles. And you can get that at createdemandcourse.com, createdemandcourse.com. And then that, that is free. And then once you get through the eight-part series, typically we're sending weekly little hard-hitting three- to five-minute videos out on, on topics that would be helpful around everything we talked about today. Um, and then the, the $20 way is to go to snowballsystem.com and get the book snowballsystem.com it's available in kindle formats in print formats in audiobook formats at every major bookseller all over the world and snowballsystem.com gives you all the links to all those places you can get it and, and speaking personally you should buy the book i've read it it's awesome it's endorsed by some brilliant people and as you've heard from mo today has some very concrete tangible ways that you can influence authentically mo want to really thank you for taking the time uh, coming on the podcast, sharing your expertise with my listeners. Thanks for everything you've uh, you've provided us. Thanks, Bart. Hey, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mo Benel today. I always love talking to him. I always pick up things about how you can build relationships in an authentic and purposeful way. You should definitely pick up his book, The Snowball System. It's a great and easy read uh, and a good way to start your year. I'll be back next week with another episode. I have as my guest, Bruce Wiesner. Bruce is the Associate Dean of Executive Education at the Souther School of Business, which is in Vancouver. And he is talking with me about how leadership is changing and what kind of communication skills uh, his clients uh, are coming to the business school to develop. So tune in next week.